Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of Smart Guard and Pig Flow. To learn how Pig Flow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Hypor Genetics, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today we're going to talk about pig survivability with Ron Ketchum. How are you doing today, Ron? I'm doing very good. Very good. Excited to follow up on the Pig Survivability Conference in Omaha, where you had really the opening keynote talk. And I want to ex- I want to touch the some of the areas that you talked about, but then expand on some as well. Uh, I guess if you wouldn't, you've already been a guest on the Popular Big Podcast, but if you could do a very brief introduction of, of who you are and your background, that'd be great before we get started. Uh, raised on a farm in Missouri, I graduated University of Missouri in 1973. I did spend uh, 12 years with a genetic company in various positions. Uh, then I was an area swine consultant for a major feed company for 15 years. In 2000, I moved my family to Fremont, Nebraska. We were then part of the Swine Management Services uh, Company, which was at that time working with uh, producers putting together these large pig co-ops and uh, helping manage and stock those. And in 2002, uh, the feed company that owned SMS wanted to get rid of it. So another guy and I, Mark Ricks, we purchased the company and took ownership August uh, of 2002. And uh, we had the company for 18 years. We sold it back in September 2019 to Metafarms. And I uh, worked for two years for them uh, in a, as a support position. Now I am uh, basically start up a small company just to do some consulting with some producers, do some writing, do some things, and hopefully move towards a little bit of retirement after uh, 48 years being in the swine industry. So that's kind of where I'm at now. But it's interesting. I'm getting... Several requests to do some meetings and stuff, which I like doing. I like uh, sharing information and talking with people. So uh, I'm kind of enjoying it. I'd like to slow down a little more, but we'll see where that goes. Well, congrats on your retirement. And outside of retirement, you also had a pretty big milestone at the uh, survivability conference. Your family was there to hear you talk for the first time you said in how long? Well, my wife, she did not like to travel with me any when I traveled. So it's been 34 years since she'd heard me give a presentation. And then uh, my youngest son, uh, he's uh, 30, and he had not uh, seen me in front of a group either. So I had him and his and his wife, uh, my daughter-in-law, come. And uh, so it was kind of fun. And I really wanted to thank my family for my time being gone and supporting me and uh, things like that they did, did for uh in case of my wife, we've known each other 40 years. So uh, so it was a long time. It was just kind of great to have them there. So it's kind of fun. And I'm sure because you were focused on the presentation, you didn't see it. But the the, the size of your wife's eyes when she picked up the flowers, uh, she, she was just blown <laughs> away at how big they were. She had to peer around them to see you talk. So that was pretty cool as well. Yeah, well, my son Tyler and I worked out a little deal there. And he snuck me in while she was getting coffee. and uh, So we wanted to give her something special. So, yeah, it's kind of fun. 
So to get started on today's topic around pig survivability, you gave a great com- uh, a great presentation. And I, if you could start off by just by talking about the trends of survivability and in the industry, as well as some of the challenges that come with trying to identify those trends. Uh, yeah, I kind of broke the talk up into three areas. I spent some time on the sow, then piglet survival, then a little bit on finishing, but kind of kind of zeroing in on the sow area, which is to me a big concern. Uh, we, we've seen over the last, uh, you know, we've got data going back to 2005, and uh, we've seen uh, sow death loss, you know, from for and, and the database in SMS is is growing over time. But back in 2005, it was about 125,000 sows, and the last few years have been about 1.5 to 1.8 million. So it gives a pretty good recognition of the sow death loss. Uh, a high percent of those sow farms are U.S. There'd be about 350,000 sows in Canada. And then there's actually a small pod of 32,000 sows that's come from Australia, which is about 10% of their population. So, again, it gives us a good look at what the industry is doing. So, yeah, we, we saw sow death loss there for several years, around 5 or 6%. And then uh, we saw it starting up in about uh, 2015, going up about a half a percent a year. With the end in 2020, we're at 10.8% across all those farms. And uh, it just just continued to go up, and we a, a lot of us that look at that stuff. It's just been hard to try to figure out what what's really going on. And uh, we in the database we break out the top ten percent farms, and they'd always been lower, you know, than the all farm average. But even the last three or four years, they've moved up from being somewhere under six percent to now eight point four percent in 2020. So even the higher producing and I would hopefully be more well-managed farms are also seeing that number go up. So you didn't have the luxury when you gave this presentation to hear the whole two-day conference of everything people are bringing forward. Now having gone through that, when it comes to these trends and seeing this increase in sow mortality, what are some of the, the main factors or reasons that were brought forward as to explain why this is happening or assumptions? I I think some of the things that came out of it, uh, one was that uh, I I tried to emphasize the shift in the death loss and also culling to the younger parodied animals. Uh, We're seeing uh, on the database here, we're seeing farms with besides 50% of their death loss being P0s, 1s, and 2s. And again, if we think peak production is P3s and 4s, we're not even getting them. So that's something else. And other people even have started to recognize that a little bit. I think another area was looking at standardization of records. And uh, we all sit here trying to look at data. You know, I know of 26 different record programs out there, and all of them kind of have different ways of approaching calculations and collecting of data. And it's just very hard for some of us to look at the data and work with it. And uh, I, I try to bring out in my presentation of a small subset that lameness to us is one of the top areas that we're concerned about as far as sow death loss. I know we put a lot of emphasis looking at the prolapses and things, and uh, I know there's a great study done in 2018 on that. Still no big conclusion. A few little things came out of there. But still lameness and injury is still, uh, as far as I see, the top number. Even one of the other speakers on that, on the second day, again, looked at lameness as being a key issue uh, for removal of animals from farms. 
So one thing that you expanded on at this conference, which I think was a huge step forward for the industry, was the value of a dead sow. Can you talk about that a little bit here? Yeah, a, a couple of years ago, I did a meeting for a genetics company. And one of the questions going into the meeting is, what's the cost of a dead sow? And, uh, you know, we can all do different things. I actually heard someone talk the other day a, a little bit about looking at what's the cost, but what's the opportunity dollars? So you got two different things there that you need to probably look at. So I just sit down and I start listing some things. And, and again, we've got the initial cost of the guild and the development cost. And I, I put into my equations uh, $320. Now, it varies from year to year in genetic company to genetic company and things, but that's that's pretty pretty good average. The other thing we look at is most of these sows or females that die are dying with pigs in them. So uh, I put in there at least the feed equivalent for that developing of her last litter, which is about, a, in my case, about $129. I used feed at $270 and a, a little under 1,000 pounds of feed. Uh, look, there's a little bit in her vaccines, and we vaccinated her probably pre-feral for something. It'll vary from farm to farm. I put in $5. And then I look at lost litter costs. So if she was pregnant and she didn't feral those pigs for me alive, there's an opportunity dollar there. So I used uh, 11 pigs that she should have weaned at $35, which I know that's probably half about what pigs are right now. So that was 385 bucks. Then, of course, we lost the co-value. A dead sow is not worth very much. And so uh, I used 450 pounds, 35 cents, 100 weight, $157. So I come up with around $1,000 as a cost of uh, loss of that sow that we drag out dead. Now, if we looked at today's dollars and the increased salvage value and increased value of pigs, that's more like $1,500. And, uh, and then I did not take into consideration in the model other costs like the extra cost of disposing of animals that half an hour it takes the guy to remove that sow probably from a farrowing crate and get her to the disposal pile. What about disposal costs? Uh, again, replacements. We've got a higher replacement rate now because sow death worked up, so that's a higher cost per pig. Uh, what about stress on labor? You know, those people aren't too excited when they go back there and start yanking on a sow, trying to get her out of somewhere and take her to the dead pile. So what about higher workers' comp and injuries? Uh, I think that's something that's got to be an equation. Then we got the increase to cost, vaccination, feed, um, that now has got to be spread over more animals. So, you know, we, we could probably model in here something to a $2,000 bill, I think, if we wanted to, on a dead animal. And uh, that's a lot of money, you know, and we've got to do something to, to change that. It is. And there's a lot of companies out there who even require two people to pull out a dead sow. And so, yeah, 30 minutes is very reasonable as an estimate per sow of, of wasted labor. Um, it just adds up very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's something that they're not doing something productive. They're doing something that's counterproductive to what the farm needs to be doing. So, so what is going on to increase female death loss? What are some of those things that you talked about? Well, I, I'm kind of, I, my feelings is, and there was a very good chart that I showed there that uh, do, uh, Dr. Clay had uh, put out there. Very complex chart, though, that he really outlined all the different things that uh, make up uh, sow death law or look at developing of animals. And I think guilt selection and development is probably the first area that we've either slipped at or we got to look at again 
you know, uh, for several years, you know, a guy, we didn't have any GDUs for developing our gilts on these big farms. We'd bring the gilts in to mature, stick them somewhere for 30 days, bring them over to the unit, start breeding on them. Well, when we didn't have the disease challenges we have today and some things like that, it worked okay. But today, I think we've got to understand ownership of these gilts has got to take place earlier, you know, in that feeder pig size, 50 to 60 pounds. They need to be on developing gilt diets, not finisher diets for structural development. There's even some studies looking at uh, reduction in, in uh, issues with feet and legs if we feed them on a, on a, on a gilt-developing diet versus a finisher diet. I think even simple things that how long is that gilt in a nursery, especially a nursery with slick plastic floors, and she gets too heavy, it actually affects her structural uh, structure, which, again, oh. is going to make her a high potential to cull. So I think we just got to get back and review that whole area of gilt development, the nutrition package, the growing of them, selection. You know, I think when we're in the last few years in an expansion mode, uh, we have seen animals probably selected that shouldn't have got on the truck or shouldn't have got to the breeding area. And we got to train our people back in the GDUs now, which should be on farm, that a sow that's kind of post-legged or is walking very stiff or has bad feet and legs she should not even make it up to the breeding area. But you got a manager says, ah, it's important to make breeding target. Well, bring them up. If I get one litter of them, I'll be happy. But I don't think that's the way we got to approach this. we got to go back and review that whole thing. And then I brought up one other thing that uh, I got a little chuckle on is pedicures. And uh, I, I think that we've missed a big spot there on looking at trimming feet and dew claws. We look at other industries, the dairy industry, that's a routine thing of, of taking the cows, putting them in a, in a chute, laying them over and trimming their feet. Horses, if you don't do that routinely, you've got uh, horses that's got overgrown uh, toes, and it, it really affects their walk and, and, and survivability. So I think that pedicures or, or trimming dew claws and feet's got to be part of our management tool now, these big farms. and. You can go as far as having lift stations that are out there available or have something you lay them over and use power tools on them. I've got farms where we're in a simple thing of a tree pruner, and uh, when we take them up from gestation to, to the farrowing houses, we make a note on a card or a sheet, and somebody goes in there and trims off the excess length of toe. They trim the dew claws back, and uh, when they walk out to go back for their next breeding, they're ready to go. And uh, I've got one farm, but I can pretty well document about a 3% drop in sow death loss uh, just by doing that routinely because we did not have sows with ripped off dew claws sitting in the health row that had to be treated, most of the time euthanized, and uh, removed from the farm. So uh, I think that's going to become a huge part of management is trimming or pedicuring of pig's feet. 3% drop in death loss, that's about equivalent, if not in excess, if, if you're looking at a thousand to two thousand dollars on losses per animal, if, if a whole person could spend their entire time trimming toes and it'd probably pay for itself. Uh, more than pay for itself. And yeah. uh, in, in these barns, it's it's not a full time person job. I do know of some farms that have list stations that uh, pretty well have a full time person trimming them. And there's a lot of farms out there. It's not uncommon to see 80 to 90 sows in a, say, a 5,000 sow unit that are trimmed every week. And it's been interesting to watch some of these gals, every time they come through, you get to do a little work on their feet. 
Then you got other sows you walk back there that's had several litters and they're structurally sound. They haven't had to have any trimming done or anything. So it, it's just going to have a, a lot of variance on sow to sow what's going to happen. But it's going to have to be an area of emphasis if we're going to reduce the, the, the lameness and the culling issue from that. So for sow death loss, what is the time frame that we're typically looking at for when we would call it the, the high-risk time frame is? We kind of looked at that and run several, several scenarios. And again, because I've written a lot of stories from some of the magazines, we always pick a topic we try to look at. So when we looked at sow death loss in a very, very large data set, we saw that about 30% of that death loss is occurring three to four days before farrowing to three to four days after farrowing. So in that critical period of, of the sow coming up to the farrowing house, going through the farrowing, uh, the farrowing process, and then, uh, and, and then going out the other side and trying to raise a litter of pigs. So I think, again, that's back to development where the gilt's big enough when we bred them, where they structurally sound. But uh, I, I also think is we've asked these uh, high-producing females, which we definitely have total born and wean more pigs per litter now, to perform at a higher rate that they're not ready for. So we need to do something that two weeks or, say, 10 days, two weeks before farrowing to get her ready for the farrowing process. And I, I'm not sure what that is. There's some, some data and some talk of transition dieting that's come out of Europe the last two or three years of, again, some kind of a different diet fed 10 days, two weeks pre-farrow that basically gets her ready for the process. And uh, I work with some farms where we've just taken and put lactation diet in place of gestation diet the last 10 days to two weeks. And uh, we've seen a very nice uh, reduction in death loss in the farrowing houses. We've seen uh, more viable pigs at birth. And, uh, and in some of these farms, very low sow death loss. Now, they normally have been low, but uh, they have kept that death loss low. And we just do not see those younger parodies dying off during that farrowing process. And again, she's already been used to eating a different diet. Um, she's ready now to milk for the litter and get the stress out of the way and, and do that. And one other thing we've incorporated in several of these farms is, is temping sows. You know, go buy a nice, quick read digital thermometer. Should cost thirty to forty bucks. And anybody in the farrowing house should have one in their pocket. And anybody doing health out in the sow barn needs to have one. And uh, you check her. Uh, we really promote our people. The day after sow farrow, she gets temped. She's over one hundred and three degrees. Uh, we we worked with the veterinarian. We come up with the protocol to get her treated. And in a high percent of the time, a lot of it's retained pig. You know, so we'll have a protocol yeah. for getting rid yeah. of that retained pig. And you'll find that sow about three or four days later. She's the one now that hasn't been eating well, which is hard to monitor. And she's starting to go backwards, and her, piglet, her piglets are starting to go backwards. Then you got to make a big decision. You know, she's sick and still got a temp. Probably we're going to have to remove her pigs and find her in, uh, another litter for the, another sow for those pigs. We've lost the sow to lactate. And now we even have a sow probably in jeopardy of dying if we don't treat her. So a simple $30 to $40 thermometer and a temp on day one after she barrels has really helped to find a sows early. We have intervention, and then a majority of those sows go ahead and lactate their litter. Well, if we don't find them that early, they're going to end up either in the, 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 the compost pile, and that litter is going to end up either being a substandard litter on another sow. So um, I, I think there's – 
people things we should be doing that gets our staff more involved with those what those animals are doing on a on particular scheme, just like this that fairing period. Thirty percent of the death loss there. We need to have intervention that takes care of that or works on that. So with with that farrowing period, sows are having so much. They're they're so much more productive than what they used to be. How is the productivity of sows today impacting overall survivability? How do we manage for a world where we do have thirteen plus pigs weaned per litter and a sixteen plus total born? Yeah, we, we've kind of tracked that uh, pigs weaned thing, and it, it, it's gone up, and we're doing a good job, you know. Back in 2005, an average farm weaned about 21 pigs. In 2020, 26 pigs. The top farms are weaning 32, so that's a huge stress. Uh, but if we take a look at piglet survival and whether we look at, uh, at say, pre-weaning mortality, we've seen that just gradually go up along with the total born. I think we're saving some of those pigs, but we're not saving the majority of those extra pigs that, uh, that we're working with. And uh, we see pre-weaning death loss now uh, up around that 15% is not uncommon. And we see farms out there that that number's in the 20s. So uh, they buy this extra genetics, but they haven't changed their management styles to be able to save those extra pigs. So, uh, again, I you know the genetic companies, uh, I think pressure's back on them a lot by you know, people like me. They're saying, yeah, you got me all these pigs, but I need a sow that's going to lactate more of them. And uh, I need a sow that's it's a better mother. Uh, so that uh, she saves more of those pigs. So in those scenarios uh, around stillborns and preween mortality, what are some of the factors that jump out to you as being a, a, a leading indicator for success on farms that are doing well in those areas? Uh, to me, I've always been been pretty emphatic about stillborn pigs. And again, in most cases, it's a pig that's two and a half or three pounds in size, so it's not a pocket pig. And if we get them alive, those pigs survive pretty much on their own in the Fairland Creek. So I've got a lot of a lot of people I work with. We really kind of zone in on that stillborn thing. I think sow farms should be somewhere in that, you know, six tenths, five six tenths of a pig stillborn. With uh, the data average, I think the last year was a little over one pig was within the data average. Yeah. So when we look at at stillborns, there's lots of things that cause that. Um, probably. 70% of the stills come out of 20% of the sows. So there's a recognizable subset of sows on anybody's farm that should be flagged. And uh, that's a sow that has a large litter, a history of stillborns, because it's very, very repeatable. She's had them in the past. She's going to have them in the future. And then as sows get older, you know, when we get to those uppers, five, six, seven parity females, it just takes them longer to feral, and we see uh, an issue with stillborn. So it's recognized those cells. And I was actually in a farm yesterday, and I've got a farm uh, that we, we have 60 crates in a room, and we designate 20 crates for risk cells, as we call them. And I went down one room. We're just ready to wean that room off, and there was, there was uh, 20 cells in there that had feral and had pigs on them. And those were the risk cells, so they got extra attention to them. They only had uh, nine stillborns between the 20 of them. So that uh, that's less than half a pig because we were there and attended them. So at that farm, somebody pretty much attends sows in that risk row. They see them quite often during the day and into the evenings when we have a night crew. And uh, we dropped them. So stillborns overall at that farm have been dropping when we just concentrated on those recognized risk sows. 
And uh, it's very, very nice and pleasing to see that. Uh, you know, normally we like to see somebody in the feral now see sows burn every 20 to 30 minutes, but some of these big barns, uh, it, it's hard to do. And also keeping an adequate amount of trained labor in them is becoming a big issue. We've all discussed about people. And uh, so we've done some things like that. We've done another little move. There was some data that came out about four, about four years ago now that came out of Denmark looking at meal feeding sows. And uh, so I, I read the article. I liked what I was kind of listening to. So I challenged one of my farms uh, to take this on. And it was a 4,500 South farm, 17-plus uh, total born. It was a multiplier for a genetics company. And uh, we introduced uh, meal feeding. We fed the sows at 3, 9, 12, and 3 in the afternoon, a pound and a half of diet. And uh, the day, one to two days before she failed, it just kind of varied. We dropped the stillborns in there from about one and a half down to about 0.7 when we started doing that. We ran that farm for an entire year with that process, kept the stillborns around six to seven tenths. So it wasn't a fluke. It was in a big farm, and they managed it. We did not have extended feral hours at that farm. Somebody's there at about 8 o'clock, but we don't have night crews. So it was definitely done by changing of getting the sow energy in there several times a day so she finished their farrowing quicker. The, the observation from the farm was we dropped farrowing, farrowing time by about 40%. So oh, now wow. we got those sows under four hours farrowing out versus six to seven. And that by naturally, she had more energy to pop the pigs out and reduce the stillborns. Now, after one year, we changed the protocol a little bit. We went to feeding at 6, 10.30, 2.30, and 7.30 at night. And so we were a little over four, four and a half hours apart. We then started to see those sows feral. We went down to about four tenths. We dropped another three tenths off of it, huh. which just amazed me because we figured out the sows that feral after we left at night, they needed a little more energy to pop those pigs out. And, for, and now most of our stills were at night when nobody was there. So very interesting. We ran that a year or two and saw the same numbers. So again, uh, We've got people that could go in there every three to four hours and feed us out a meal diet, you know, and get that done and, and then save these pigs. What was very interesting to me, I went back and I looked at the data, and we made the most impact on the older parity sows. Older parity sows were having 2, 2.2, uh, say, stillborns were now having 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7. So it was those older sows that we got feraled out sooner that had energy that actually helped lower the stillborns considerably. Now, I oh, know wow. that's been repeated in a university I will not name, but they went out to six hours, but they did it in a farm that had 24-hour pig care, and uh, they didn't see those kind of results. I think it's too long. I think three to four hours between feedings, and uh, it's something to think about. Or if you got people longer, maybe feed them five times a day every three to four hours. But that was, and I've got other farms that have done this, and we've seen a dramatic drop in stillborn pigs. Uh, by not having to add extended hours of labor, things like that, if we can get them to fare out during the day with extra energy. So there's management changes I think we're missing out there and we haven't tried that can help do some of this stuff. Uh, uh, e even these smaller farms that don't have extended hours, we can make changes. Okay. Yeah, so you're hitting on some of the stuff with people, I guess. So how are people key to fixing some of these problems and what resources – are starting to be talked about in the industry and innovation that could also be helpful? 
Oh, the, the people thing over the last few years, and, and it's just not in the pig industry. They drive through any town. You could, yeah. You know, there's help wanted signs everywhere. We even, I, even once in a while, I do a drive in one of those drive up quick food places. You even notice the quality of the work. It's taking longer to get your order. Did you get your order right? And I had one recently. It was cold when I got it, and I was, you know, set there. So <laughs> I, I think it's 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 a universal problem now. Sal units, I think, are hit even harder. We have them in remote locations to, due to biosecurity, and we have probably a limited number of people around them. And uh, it, it's yeah. just hard to get people to show up and be there every day. And and I, I think, I don't like to be critical, but I think some of our generation today are just not as reliable at showing up for the job and, and not as in, 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 in great engaged in doing their day-to-day task like they should. And it's unfortunate, but that's just what we're having to deal with now. I know there's been some move. I have several farms I work with that are using TM visa people, you know, bringing people from other countries in here. I know one large group I work with, they provide housing, transportation back and forth from the farm. Very, very well managed, very productive system. So it's unfortunate we got to go outside the country to find quality labor. But I think that's something, and I know it's even talked about in the Congress to try to get us more people in here. Because we're just short, flat, short labor, especially in those kind of jobs. And I think the other part is 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 the training part. You know, there's training programs out there, but if they're only going to stick around four or five months, do you invest money in them to start with? And uh, if they're not going to be around, so then it, it's it's a what do you do? You know, uh, some of these jobs that people do, and they're especially in the fair and house, they're they're repetitive, but they got to make quick decisions. They got to be able to think, well, what happens here? And they're just some people, it takes time for them to do that, and they're not sticking around. So it's just unfortunate yeah. for our industry and, and any industry today. So what are we going to do? I'm not sure. Uh, we can only automate and robot so much, especially in South Farms. It's, it's down to people being there. And there was some comments made at the meeting. I think I commented about people. What What is that equation? Is, is pig production 90% people and 10% everything else? That might be an extreme but other people are saying some similar numbers it's yeah. down to if we don't have the quality labor and they show up every day, we're going to be a substandard or below production farm to be one of those best farms. we got to do some things considerably different and uh, have quality people. that's there every day to get it done. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. And I don't see in the future it, it going away anytime soon. And I always have kind of a thing when I look at farms is, if the percent W-2s is higher than the replacement rate, we got a problem. And well, some of these farms need to probably run that equation. How many people did you have last year you sent a W-2 divided by your staff? Look what that percent is. And you might be quite surprised what number you see. Okay. No, those are some great points. Uh, no, and I appreciate you going through everything that you went over and talked about at the at the conference. Was there any things outside of your talk that really jumped out to you from the two-day conference that uh, you learned that were new? Uh, there were some things talked about in the inducing area. Kara Stewart, Dr. Kara Stewart from Purdue talked about that uh, maybe inducing is not doing what we think it's supposed to do and uh, that it actually had a negative impact on colostrum quality. And, uh, you know, to us, that colostrum is a key point. One thing she brought up is we used to think 200 uh, uh, grams was kind of where we needed to be as minimum into a pig for survivability. 
she thinks that number may be close to 300. So again, uh, and that's a very unpredictable amount. We don't know what amount of sow produces a cholesterol. You know, we can we can try yep. to measure some sow, but it's quite varied. And what causes it? What changes it? And uh, so that's a big area to look at. And then when we got a little bit into the finishing, and I spent a little time on finishing, that's there's not a lot of good data really giving us some trend lines in finishing. But some areas, uh, one talked about just going through some barns and looking where they had over, they hadn't done a good job of counting the pigs into the pens. Mm. And then they had pens that were overpopulated, and they saw higher death loss in those pens. So just the simple things like can you count the number of pigs that should be in the pen, maybe something, or taking two or three pens out of a barn as a hospital pen, and, and then put all the other pigs at risk because we got them too crowded. So what what are some things we need to do different uh, to be able to get to that? And then also I looked at some data, whether it's nursery or whether it's finishing, that first two to four weeks, in the, one to four weeks in the barn is when uh, about half of the death loss occurs. So again, just like this window we had for sows in the Farrowin house, there's a window in those first one to four weeks that we need to have um, change our change our attitudes, make people there more often, or we got to intervene something a little bit more often to start those animals to reduce that death loss. It's not occurring at the end; it's occurring at the beginning. And so, what do we do to change that? So, uh, so it's it's going to be interesting. Uh, uh, it, it, I, I wish I was twenty or thirty years younger to see where this goes, but uh, unfortunately, I'm not. But I plan to stick around and try to be involved with this. I've been asked to, uh, to review some stuff and look some stuff for some other companies now. And I'm very intrigued by some of the things I'm seeing. So I'm kind of anxious. And this people side is something that the folks that do more work on that people side is going to be what we've got to really be queuing in on and then introduce some new technologies that they can follow. So with that, to kind of close things out, we've been asking kind of a new question, and that's what's one, what's something about you most of your colleagues do not know? They do not know about me. Well, that uh, in my younger years, I was a pretty good dancer. I oh, really? Several contests in uh, the different genres, whether it's country, western, or or the uh, or some of the other things, the things. And I got to dance one time. I did a ballroom dance at a fundraiser in, in the Sioux City, Iowa, where I danced like uh, Fred, uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire and the tuxedos and everything. So <laughs> I did that in front of a large crowd one time, and I got talked into it by a friend. So uh, those are the kind of things that uh, that's probably not too many people know that. Okay, That's pretty cool. Well, thank you, Ron, for joining us again on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you on here, and uh, we really thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome, man. Anytime I can be of help, let me know. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode... Please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.